The views and opinions expressed by the guests on the following program do not necessarily represent those of Mark Radio, The Shepherd, or its advertisers. From the studios of The Shepherd Radio Network, it's Afternoons with Mike. This next hour is all about our walk with Jesus with local pastors, newsmakers, people who are making a difference for the gospel. Now, here is your host, Mike Gilland. And we welcome you back to Afternoons with Mike right here on the Shepherd Radio Network. Each and every day, it's my privilege across the network to uh, get to be in a conversation with someone that is doing great things for God. And I do have that today for you. Tanya Wilson is an author, a speaker, and she is a deputy city manager. That's her day job down in the Miami Shores area. And she is uh, was introduced to me through the conversation she had with my good buddy, John Crossman. And I so enjoyed that chat. I had to have Tanya on my program uh, as well and introduce you to her. So, Tanya, welcome to my program. Ah, Mike, thank you for having me. It's really a delight to be here. Now, getting to talk to people with this delightful accent that you have, I think it's important to kind of give us a little bit of your background. What part of the world did you come from? All right. So this beautiful accent that you're hearing actually hails from Jamaica. So I am from Kingston, Jamaica, transplanted in Florida and now live in the Miami area. You know, those of us in uh, America, we don't think we have the accent. You know, that's the way every one of us. (laughs) And yet when Americans go to Jamaica, Jamaicans want to hear them talk. They just don't realize it. You got it. You got it. Absolutely. (laughs) And after we walk away, they mock us and make fun of us. Just, uh, it's just amazing. But we love love about that, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) We love this uh, this wonderful uh, Jamaican brogue that you have, and I just think it's awesome. You strike me, Tanya, as someone that uh, is deep in her love for God and deep in her understanding that life is not a, a bed of roses. There are things that's happened to your life, to happen to you personally, that um, was almost overwhelming. So uh, give us a little bit about the background. First of all, how did you come to know the Lord? So I came to know the Lord really through um, the influence of my grandmother. At a very early age, uh, my home was steeped in prayer and steeped in hymns, and I would often hear her hymning and washing, humming and washing and singing hymns um, throughout the day as she was cooking. We were really steeped in it. And at that young age, you know, we didn't have a deep appreciation of those seed-sowing years. Um, It would be many years later in adult life that I would discover that she was really watering our faith um, for a future harvest. You know, so, so now that I am older, I find myself humming those hymns of Zion. I find myself uh, really reverting um, to those foundations that I learned in prayer through the faith of my grandmother. Um, so those are the seed sowing years. Um, the early years were spent sitting at the feet of my grandmother, learning about the love of the Lord and learning about the word. Um, and I'm so grateful for that. Um, certainly it's something that I draw on now in my older years. You know, I think you're right when you say that it, we just have no idea of the atmosphere that we can create, that other people become aware of that atmosphere, that environment, if you will, of, of our singing or humming, like you said, and maybe not even in direct conversation. You know, I've I heard years ago that f- that phrase that I just love, it says, more is caught than taught. Mm. And I mm. think that's really true, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. 
Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And we take for granted sometimes, um, especially for the grandparents, you know, the legacy that they carry in faith and just how impactful that can be for the next generation. You know, oftentimes we think what's left behind um, are treasures or tangible things. But I think that living faith, you know, when our children are able to witness um, that conviction that we have for Christ and our children are able to witness um, the love and desire that we have for the Word, that's something that could be transferable from generation to generation. So we have that obligation, really have that obligation to share that faith um, with the children and grandchildren to really impact those truths from the Word with them. You know, what's heartbreaking for me, Tanya, is so many today in the world, uh, even people who grew up with some measure of, let's say, background in going to church and having a relationship with the Lord, but in this culture, it's becoming increasingly apparent that many people have not stayed with that that kind of conviction to create that kind of atmosphere. And as a result, we've got young people growing up with really very little understanding of or exposure to the kind of hymns, the kind of background, the kind of even speech about God that you would have had. And that's heartbreaking, isn't it? Yes, and I would agree. Um, I particularly stayed in youth ministry over the years um, because I see that as being one of the very vulnerable places um, in the faith walk. You know, oftentimes there's peer pressure that our young people receive at school or, you know, in extracurricular activities. And if we're not able to counterbalance that um, by really pouring into them in the devotional time that we spend with our families, really in the times that we spend in conversations, even at the dinner table or driving in the car, um, my home now is steeped in devotional time every morning and every evening. Um, we use the opportunity to gather the children together in prayer, we use the opportunity to just really have conversations with them at night. You know, reading time for my children is devotional time, but it's also conversation time. That's um, so we can't underestimate the value of pouring into particularly the young people at a critical time that their faith is under construction. Um, it's in those later years, like I talk about in my book, that you're able to draw on the foundations of your faith. You know, the tree begins as a seed, and from that seed, Sowing years, it grows into um, that mid-level plant and then eventually into that very strong tree. But it didn't become a tree overnight. Um, there were levels of water poured into it and sunshine and air. Um, so we have a responsibility, Mike. Um, God has given us a responsibility um, to be the repairers of the breach and to be restorers of half the dwelling. Mm. And we certainly can't take that for granted. Um, this is a season that we need to be pouring into and really fortifying that generation of um, light bearers. They will be light bearers that will be carrying this gospel message, and we have an obligation to pour into them at this in this season that we're in. And, you know, I think uh, another aspect of that that was became very apparent to Cindy and me as we were training up our four kids when they were young, one aspect was, was that we just could not realize in that moment, I don't think anybody does, the day-to-day impact, the small things, those minutes that seem like you'll never run out of those minutes with your kids when they're young. It feels like they're going to be young forever. They're always going to be sitting around that that breakfast table or that dinner table. And, you know, we've got to, we've got to remember that time is passing. And just like yeah. you said, that tree that is now big and the boughs of that tree go way out and goes very high in the sky, it didn't turn that way. 
away overnight. It was a seedling. It was under the ground for a long time. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, Mike, I look at my life as seasons and our lives as seasons. Um, The Bible talks about there's a time under the sun and a season. You know, there's a Mm -hmm. time for weeping and there's a time for rejoicing and mourning. Um, And we have to recognize that those seasons will shift. They have a beginning and an end. So if you have an opportunity to really cultivate the faith um, of your children and and your family, that season should not be squandered. That season shouldn't be um, just casually approached. That season should be seen as what it is, a season of seed sowing. And I keep going back to that because I think, like you just said, um, before you know it, at the snap of a finger, you're in a completely different season. Um, so we have to value those seasons of cultivation and those seasons of pouring into um, not just our children, but it could be the children that God has put into our sphere of influence. Mm-hmm. You know, oftentimes yeah, right. you, it's not hard to find children within our church that are not fathered or children within our, our sphere of influence that need nurturing and support. And you can see it through spirit eyes oftentimes when a child is neglected and really doesn't have the level of connectivity that you have in your own family. Um, God is, is holding us accountable for those children as well. Um, I read in Scripture yesterday, actually, I was in devotion looking at the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 58, and it talks about the responsibility that we have to be custodians of the fatherless and custodians of the poor and custodians of the needy. So when we are in those opportunities and those seasons and we see that we can pour into and be of support, like we're doing now on this this radio interview, you know, when we see that there's opportunity and means for us to just be those vessels of light and those vessels of support, there really should be a willingness to do so. And then the scripture says, your light will spring forward like the noonday. Um, So it's in those pouring and in those cultivation seasons that even ourselves, we receive blessings from the Lord as a result of being obedient in those seasons. I agree completely. And, you know, that's the beautiful thing about uh, even doing this on radio is that we have no idea of the reach. God the Father knows, though, and he has through the Holy Spirit. He sends words like what you're sharing, your testimony, the power of what God has done in your life. And it's going out and we have no idea where it's going to go. But where it goes, the Bible says, wherever his word goes out, it will not return void. It's going to bring truth. It's going to bring help and inspiration to those people who are hearing it. And that's what you do. I I love it. I I love everything about the ideas that God gave you for your book. It's called, again, The Mangolicious Life. We're going to get more uh, in in the actual book in just a Mm -hmm. moment. But I do want to go back to your beginnings. Now, growing up in Jamaica, did you ever think that you would be living in the U.S.? Wow, absolutely not. <laughs> you talk about seasons of change I and bet. seasons of disruption. <laughs> How did that yeah. happen? Living in Jamaica, um, typical island life. You know, I, I grew up in Kingston, and Kingston is one of those um, very complicated cities. You know, you are in a metropolitan area where you're met with transportation systems of busways and highways and sidewalks and people bustling through commercial districts. But interwoven in that is the island fabric of you may see a goat wandering down the road. (laughs) You may see 
chickens cutting across the street. <laughs> so there's this hodgepodge of metropolitan buzz mixed in um, with rural life, you know, with speckles of just the culture of vibrance and fruit and street vendors screaming and exchanging um, words and hackling you for prices. Um, so I was in that very unusual labyrinth, you know. Um, but even within it, I had a very uh, stable home in terms of the spirituality of the home that kept us grounded. However, our home um, did experience disruptions. And I'm going to meander a little bit into stuff that you're going to cover into the book, but I think the timing is good given the question oh, that sure. you asked. Oh, sure. Go ahead. So even though, you know, we were in the midst of island life and we we're in the midst of the vibrance, um, certainly there, my, my home wasn't cocooned from adversity. So at a very young age, at the age of six, I encountered the experience of divorce. Um, my parents went through a very difficult marriage at that stage, and it ruptured the family uh, where my father left the home. And we were now being raised by a single parent, my mom. And it was a very trying time for my sisters and myself, because, of course, our home was stable, our home was steeped in prayer. And for the first time, we experienced the winds of adversity. And, and Mike, it knocked the wind out my sail. Like, mm, I had I never encountered yeah. that level of disruption before, trying to meander and understand um, what happened to, you know, our home, the stability of our home. It, it felt like a shattered glass, like someone had hit the glass and it completely shattered in front of us. And we had to watch that. Um, but again, I thank God for giving us a praying grandmother because she became the stability in the home. Grandma lived with us, became the stability in the home when the ship was just floating away from harbor and we couldn't figure out where stability was. We found that in the spirituality of the grandmother, right? And mm. then my mom became the foundation in terms of education. She was always big on, regardless of what's going on in school, you need to focus. Um, you need to make sure that you're getting good grades. For all my sisters, we were held to a high standard of even if your home is disrupted at this point, school is what is your priority. Let me take care of the rest. You focus on school and get those grades that you need to get because this will be your passage through life. Uh, my mother is a registered nurse. She's retired now. But at the time, um, while in Jamaica, she was recruited to go to Miami, Mercy Hospital, they were hiring nurses from Jamaica and Philippines and other countries. I think there was a shortage here in the United States, mm -hmm. and they were looking for professional nurses in other countries. Jamaica, being a part of um, former British Commonwealth, had very seasoned trained nurses, so we were often the recruiting ground for many of the opportunities in the United States. So my mom became one of those nurses recruited um, to go to Miami to work there. She would work there for a number of years, then returned to Jamaica. And it wasn't until we were in our teenage years that she decided to return um, to the United States and decided that we would go with her this time. Um, so we took passage from Jamaica, uh, migrated to the United States. Uh, my mom would work there as a registered nurse now at Jackson Hospital, um, where she was assigned to the newborn ICU unit. Uh, I had never seen premature babies before. Uh, she was in a critical care, high-intensive unit, saving lives of babies every day. This recruited nurse from Jamaica wow. um, became the frontline um, support system for Jackson Memorial with her expertise at the time. So we were enrolled in college at 16. I was 16. My sister was 17. Uh, my other sister, Trisha, was 18. Enrolled in college at a very young age. But again, the foundation that carried us um, was the thought that 
we were Christian children. We were being transplanted, but we kept the foundation of faith with us as we left from Jamaica to Florida. And for us, again, the propelling force was school is a priority. You focus on your education. Mm -hmm. um, so I would go through and study uh, economics first as my bachelor's degree, 16 enrolled at Broad College, eventually graduated from FAU with a bachelor's in economics, um, had a love and passion for community development. You know, having done some classes in urban geography, I just had a, a fascination and an interest with cities. And, and as you hear me talking about the bustle and complexity of Kingston, you can understand there was a curiosity about how the system and the, the life system of cities functioned. You know, how did you move people from place to place and how did you transform communities and create beautiful parks and schools? That, that whole interconnected system was mm -hmm. fascinating to me. Um, why did some people live in one neighborhood and other people were in blighted areas? So um, I decided that I was going to pursue a degree in urban planning. And the Lord impressed me to apply to the University of Maryland. I had good grades, so got a full scholarship to the University of Maryland, um, studied there, got my master's degree in urban planning. And that has opened up like a world of opportunities for me. I'm so blessed and feel so grateful that I pursued um, that degree just opened my eyes in terms of how uh, the system of the city functions and how we are to be good custodians of our communities. Um, I find in urban planning um, an intersection of my faith um, in, in bringing um, the gospel, <laughs> so to speak, you know, when we bring the tenets of our faith to work, it's not something that we can separate from who we are. So I get the opportunity to be able to give um, that that whole faith experience in my work and community as being a servant leader. That's how I think of my role as a public servant in government, being a servant leader. Um, and then at the same time, the curiosity of how you can help to manage cities and help to improve cities and improve traffic ways. We talked about the crazy traffic of Miami. <laughs> That's right. Now you're able to influence that with transit oriented development and improving traffic flows. Really what an urban planner does is bring quality of life to cities. Um, so it's a joy for me to be a per public servant. I've been in public service and government for over 25 years now. Wow. I would choose no other way, Mike. That's wonderful. Um, it's, it's a natural area for me to be able to pour into communities and watch communities thrive as a result of my personal faith conviction as well as my technical training. Um, so now I've had the wonderful opportunity to serve as deputy city manager for Miami Shores Village. Beautiful community. I'm a jewel in Miami um, and something that I've enjoyed. Uh, for the last number of years. But that was my journey in a nutshell. That's it. <laughs> from the beautiful island of Jamaica here in the United States, where, like my mother, I've been able to be of impact. Um, and I, I call myself sometimes an earth shaker and a, a rainmaker um, because of what God has allowed me to do over the years and the things that I have seen um, that have given me the experience and the eyes to be able to be um, a custodian of cities and a custodian of what God has given us in the community. Tanya Wilson is my guest. We're up against a break. Boy, this is so much fun to get to talk to her. I love just listening to you talk, so that's great. We'll be back in a moment with Tanya Wilson in just a moment right here on Afternoons with Mike. Pastors and financial leaders, do you need expert accounting or tax help? Do you have payroll or 1099 questions? Do you need a ministry expert to help you acquire real estate for your next project? If the answer is yes, yes, and yes, visit PetraWorldwide.org. Petra Worldwide has been strengthening ministries to transform humanity since 2007. 
Visit PetraWorldwide.org or call 855-481-9095. Palm Beach Atlantic University Orlando offers three distinct areas of study. An evening Master's of Science in Clinical Mental Health Counseling, an evening Bachelor's of Science in Human Services, and our new Daytime Bachelor's of Science in Nursing. All of our courses are offered at our beautiful campus on Millennia Boulevard. For more information or to schedule a tour, call 844-PBA-ORLANDO. That's 844-PBA-ORLANDO. On the line with me is Tanya Wilson. Tanya's an author. She speaks, and she speaks so well, as you can tell. She's a deputy city manager in uh, the area of Miami Shores. That'd be north of Miami, right? It is south of Miami. Oh, We're it's right south. between North Miami and the city of Miami. Oh, okay. Then uh, my, that is a little different geography than what I had in mind. So, yeah, mm-hmm. that's uh, that's really great. I mean, I, I love that whole area of Miami. It's for us. Uh, it uh, I've only been down there a couple of times. I believe it or not, most of our times been in Central Florida. But the mm-hmm. life, the life of uh, Miami and that whole area, it's vibrant, isn't it? It really is. Um, Miami's a beautiful place. It just has such a collection, rich collection of folks from all over the world. Oh, it's yeah. an international center and a gateway to Latin America. Absolutely. I mean, the Cuban population, having gone to Cuba, yeah, oh, my gosh, I, I just love that uh, whole region. And it's so great mm-hmm. that you are there and God uh, pre- just really prepared you for what you're doing as a deputy mm-hmm. city manager in urban planning. And that's so exciting. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the first segment, we were talking about just how God sets the road. And then during the break, we were talking about what happens along with us in our own personal lives on that journey. As you mentioned at the end of segment one, your journey to Miami happened uh, as a result of just all of these things. But but you're, you know, once you got to that area, <laughs> your journey continued in, the, in some unusual ways, right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. So absolutely. tell us a little bit about some of these struggles that became, let's say, became part of the uh, basis for your book on adversity. Yeah. So the, the title again um, will resonate with folks once I explain what the Mangalicious Life is. So um, I titled the book Living the Mangalicious Life, and then the subtitle is Tips and Tips in Surviving and Thriving Beyond Seasons of Adversity. Um, like I mentioned, Mike, you know, my first brush with adversity was age six when my parents went through their yeah. divorce. Not something that you would ever imagine at that little age when you're still um, still growing and learning about the realities of life. So I had an earlier introduction without realizing it was going to prepare me for future experiences in life, preparing me to be able to bounce back, preparing me to understand that life was not perfect. Um, Since then, uh, my second experience with adversity came when uh, my child Mariah was born. Uh, Mariah was born premature, so I woke up that morning with a stabbing pain, and it was early morning, like about 3 a.m. in the morning, stabbing pain in my abdomen, and I didn't understand um, what was happening. I thought I had gas pains. You know, I said to my husband at the time, you know, maybe I need to drink tea because we're island girls. Every time we have pain, it's tea. That's right. <laughs> it's hot mint tea. I drank the hot mint tea, threw it up. It just, nothing could subside. And the pain just became increasingly intense. And I noticed that it was coming in rhythm. So I called my mom, the registered nurse, and I said, what's going on? You know, I'm feeling this pain. And she said, China, you're pregnant. Don't call me. Call your physician and find out, you know, this 
is anything significant enough to go to the hospital. And when I called my doctor, she said, time it and see if the pain is coming um, in timed intervals. And when I did that, sure enough, Mike, the intervals were even. And she said, you need to go to the hospital. You were in labor. I was in labor. But Mm -hmm. the warning signs for me, because I was so green and inexperienced with adversity, that season of adversity, so inexperienced, oftentimes, Mike, we don't see the warning signs. Mm -hmm. I was 28 weeks pregnant. So for most people at 28 weeks, you're doing a Lamaze class, you're painting the room a pretty color pink or blue. You know, you're getting all the trimmings. The last thing in your head is let me prepare for labor. So I was not prepared for labor. I was not thinking I was anywhere near labor at seven months because the baby comes in 40 weeks. So when they rushed me to the hospital, uh, my husband pulled up in uh, the emergency entrance. My water broke. My water broke. Now it's coming imminently. This is not good. Yes, this is not good. So Mike, they rushed me in and they tried everything to slow that labor down and all the procedures. And I've never seen such a synchronized movement of professionals in a room. Everyone in a ground and a scrubs was in that room, moving around, trying to rescue this life and to slow the delivery process down. But that day, God said she would come. Mm-hmm. Mariah was delivered early that morning, delivered at two pounds. She had the umbilical cord wrapped tightly around her neck. She was blue. She had no vital signs, no pulse. And in the room, I could see fear in the eyes of the professionals. And I knew the words eventually would come. And I cried out. Mike, I was on that bed and I cried out, God, don't let my baby die. Everything in me cried out that morning, saying to heaven, you cannot do this to me. I didn't understand at that stage as a Christian that when you cry out like that, Mike, heaven is not obligated to hear you. That's right. Because in my naive state, I thought, at the name of Jesus, demons will flee and tremble. They do. But heaven is not obligated to hear me because God will have his will. Yeah. And I cried out that morning, and the baby was whisked away from me. I didn't see her again, but I know I sat. I didn't hear anything. They probably were giving me instructions for labor and delivery. Mike, I was just in a conversation between Tanya and Heaven, crying out and having a serious talk with God, saying, don't let this happen to me. This is 28 weeks. I've been faithful to you. How could you do this? I was angry. I was scared. I was shocked. All the emotions were flying on that table. Eventually, the doctor walked in and explained. She said, listen, the baby was tangled in your umbilical cord. Your body went into delivery. The body went into rescue mode because the baby was in distress. She said, the good news is the baby survived, but the baby is a mess. I just want to let you know this is going to be a difficult road. And even in that moment of hard delivery message, I was still somewhat comforted, Mike, because in my head, the baby had not died. And I said, God, thank you. I just took the bad news as good news because at least there was hope. The baby didn't die. The baby had bleeding in the brain. The baby had holes in her heart. Mm. The baby had the cord wrapped around her, but the baby was still alive. And I praised God in that moment, saying, God, I thank you that even when the enemy comes in like a flood, you could lift up a standard against him. God saved that baby. And we went on a faith journey. My husband and I went on a faith journey like we had never been on before. We were new parents to a critically born, premature baby. In the ICU, John, did I tell you that my mom was an ICU nurse working in the NICU for Jackson Memorial? Mommy had retired two weeks prior to my premature delivery. Mommy had retired as a NICU nurse 
to premature babies where she had worked for over 30 years. She was the expert in that area when I was not. You talk about the providence and intentionality of God. Gave me a retired nurse who was an expert in that area to be by the bedside. Mommy was in that room that night when I was crying out. She came in and she was there in the wee hours of the morning to be able to support me. She said, Tanya, hold it together. You're going to be okay. I heard that voice and I was calm. (laughs) I was in the presence of a registered nurse who was experienced in that care service. She was experienced in dealing with critically care, critically severely ill infants. And I felt in that one moment, okay, I'm going to be okay in terms of the technicalities of it because my mother is versed in it and she will help shepherd us through this experience. So God was merciful in that way that he allowed her to be available because she wasn't working. Now she was retired. She could be available to help support um, the care process for that baby. That would be a prayer walking, faith-claiming, promise-claiming season for us. Four months of that season of adversity, watching that baby in the NICU was one of the hardest things I had ever been through. Mike, it's hard enough to go through your own affliction, but when you go through the affliction for your children, it's even more difficult because they're so small, they can't can't express their needs. They can't cry out for themselves. So you become the one who stands in the gap praying for your children. We prayed for that baby for over four months. Our church prayed. My mother was there while she was in the NICU, and we thought bad news couldn't get worse. She developed an infection in her intestines. Mm. Necrotizing endocolitis is what it was called. I had never heard that before. NEC is one of the worst things that a premature baby could develop. It's, it's, it's literally your intestines rotting um, from the inside out. None of the nurses or doctors detected it. My mother, who was retired and had experienced eyes, came in, looked at Mariah. That's her name, Mount Mariah, M-O-R-I-A-H, Covenant Keeping Place. Looked at Mariah in that little isolate, and she said, something is wrong with this baby. She picked up the chart, Mike, and started flipping through the chart. Mommy looked through the chart and said, the centimeters on the abdomen. She said, Tanya, I don't know if they noticed, but the centimeters are increasing. This baby's abdomen is distended. I said, Mommy, you can't touch the charts. <laughs> the charts are for the hospital, for the nurse. She said, no, 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 no. I'm going to take a look at this chart, and I'm also going to have the nurse take a look at it because I'm concerned. And she brought the nurse in and said, look at the chart. The centimeters are increasing. Her abdomen is distended. And she said, when has this baby stooled? They realized that the baby hadn't stooled for quite a period of time. And remember, mm. this baby at this time is only two weeks old. She's yeah, two right. pounds. You're not talking with a big nine-pound infant. Critically care, so not to stool for a day or two is not a good sign. Something right. is happening. There's possibly blockage. Sure enough, when they brought the doctor in, everyone became alarmed because they realized the grandmother was correct. They started doing all kind of probing with the stethoscopes, realized that there was blockage in the intestine. Within a day, Mariah was in surgery. Two-pound infant with the bleeding in the brain, messed up heart with the holes. Bad news couldn't get worse. When I say we went lower than a frog in the road, because we are wondering and asking God, how did we get from a place of preparing for a perfect delivery to this absolute scene of chaos and pain? But even in the midst of it, in the midst of it, Mike, there was a sense of peace that God gave us that says, Tanya, I am in control. Tanya, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm talking about all those scriptures learned from a grandmother at a very young age. Words that I couldn't even pick up my Bible to read became flooding through my mind 
like a peace that would pass all understanding to keep my mind and heart in Christ Jesus. It's in those seed-sowing years that we need to really cultivate that relationship with Christ and really have that abiding spirit. Because in the years of adversity, Mike, this is what we draw on through autopilot, even when there is no inclination to read the word because you are so much in pain and afflicted. The word comes pouring out of you literally um, from places and reservoirs that you didn't know you had. That's exactly and in right. in those dark hours, those words of comfort and scripture was what kept us. Mm. That's an amazing story. Now, what happened with Mariah? So the good news is, <laughs> after the four months, um, Mariah was miraculously discharged. The holes in the heart closed up. The bleeding in the brain subsided, oh. and she was a whole five and a half pounds. Within four months, she was discharged from Memorial Hospital and sent home on just a bottle of polyvisol multivitamin. Isn't that <laughs> wow? Won't he do it? The God of heaven healed her. He promised he would, took us through the journey. She survived her surgery, um, recovered and rebounded. And Mariah is now 15 years old, living her best life. She's in high school in the ninth grade, has an amazing memory like I have never seen before. When I say God restores, she is the evidence for us every day that God restores. She still has a huge scar across her abdomen. And we've told her the story of her birth, so she knows her testimony. Whenever she's asked, why do you have that huge scar? She's reminded that Jesus bore scars for us as well, mm-hmm. and she calls those her victory scars. It's uh, a testimony of the victories that God performed, not just for her, but for this entire family. So to God be the glory. She's doing exceptionally well, continues to thrive. Um, thus the title of my book. We don't just survive, Mike. We can thrive beyond seasons of adversity. Right. And she's a testament of that for me. You know, and I love that story. You're so right. We can't tell God what to do or when to do it. God is God, and he had mercy on you. He had mercy on Mariah. And I love the story. I love the way it ends, and I love the fact that she has now a living uh, testimony, uh, a scar that she can always point to and remember the goodness of God when she was completely helpless. And that is exactly right. But that wasn't the only adversity that you had, right? No, it wasn't, Mike. <laughs> so, I mean, you had enough. You I mean, come on. You, yeah, what what yes, could be worse, right? And you give one one testimony, and you figure that's a testimony for the ages. And <laughs> I was content with one testimony, Mike. I wasn't going to be greedy. I said, Lord, if you give me no more testimonies, I'm good for a while. <laughs> that's right. Mike, on Mariah's birthday the following year, I felt a lump in my breast. Woke up early that morning. I could see the palm trees swaying in Miami and the air had a nice crisp, toasty (laughs) energy that I knew today is going to be a fantastic day. Felt a lump. And I said, nah, there's no way. This is a year after I came out of a battle, a battle with Mariah's adversity. There's no way. And I said to my husband, "Eh, I felt a lump, but I think it's nothing. It's probably just seasonal. It's dense breast. It's something else. And he said, well, it doesn't hurt to check it out. So I called my doctor and she brought me in that week. She did an examination and said, well, I'm not sure what it is. Let's just send you in for an ultrasound. So Mike, I went in for my ultrasound and still thinking, remember what I said before, oftentimes when we're inexperienced, we don't measure the signs that adversity is upon us. That's right. So I'm entering into this thinking, this is diagnostic testing. I'll be back 
into my garden, doing what my I like to do, and this will be past. This is not for me. I choose not to be in this season, so I tell myself this is not for me. Right. And after I was screened with the ultrasound, they said, uh, we think you need to come in for an MRI. And then the doctor said, still not sure you need to do a biopsy. And Mike, the doctor said, you have ductal carcinoma. It sounded Greek. It sounded Latin. It didn't sound like anything that should be associated with me or my body or this person. And remember, I had just been through a season of adversity the year before. Right. And on the anniversary of my daughter's birthday, I'm, I'm discovering that I have another season that I'm about to embark upon. And here, a week or two later, it's confirmed you're about to go through your own personal health battle like never before. And I broke down crying in that doctor's office. When he said those words, you have breast cancer, I was done. Mike, at that point, I wrestled with God in my mind. I wrestled with my faith. I tried to reconcile, how is it fair? And that was the word I used with God, how is it fair? You remember you said before, we try to tell God what we're willing to do and not do. (laughs) That's right. I said, God. How is it fair that I'm about to go through this season of adversity again? This is so unfair. So I went through the stages of anger. I went through the stages of shock. And eventually, weeks later, I broke out into hives, Mike. It was that bad that I internalized in my mind I was going to die. And for me, cancer was a death sentence. I said, I cannot believe I was only 30 years old so young. There was no history of cancer in my family. I was it. I was a vegetarian my entire life, fit as a fiddle, ran the 5K, touching the health laws, blameless, you know, and here I was with my mortality looming up before my face. And Mike, I was not ready for it. I was tired. I was not ready to embark on this season. But God is so merciful. I'm going to stop you right there, Tanya. I'm going to stop you right there because we're up against a break. We're going to pick this story up and find out what God did in this second now, this second battle facing Tanya Wilson. I'll be right back with her in a moment. This is Afternoons with Mike here on The Shepherd. EC Waters Air Conditioning and Heat serves all your comfort needs. With over 40 years experience, EC Waters is a top trained comfort specialist, earning customers for life with integrity. No wonder EC Waters Air Conditioning and Heat has earned a 4.6 or higher out of 5 rating and reviews across all major online platforms. For all your comfort needs, call 407-603-9144 or visit ecwaters.com. Wow, this story is amazing. It's a cliffhanger. We kind of left Tanya Wilson at the end of segment two talking about how that this second siege now, a diagnosis of breast cancer, had come upon her just a year after almost losing her daughter and a four-month battle in NICU. That's almost overwhelming, but God knew that it wasn't going to take you down, right? Yes, absolutely. And you know, the, the enemy of our souls can really mess with our minds in that season, Mike. Um I begin, began to internalize the thought of, of dying at the age of 30, dying so young from this terminal illness that I broke out into hives. And, you know, I called my doctor and she brought me in and I said, the cancer is spreading. I have hives all over my body. And she sat me down. She said, Tanya, calm down. She said, I know it's a lot to deal with and you've been given a very difficult diagnosis. But she said, there are survivors and we're going to take you through the passage, thank God for Dr. Morrison, we're going to take you through the passage, we're going to have consults with your physicians, 
you have options. Thank God, you know, and I give thanks, uh, Mike, for simple things as a good physician, simple things as I had health insurance. You know, there are things that you just cannot take for granted when you're going through these difficult seasons. Um, And I had the support of family. You know, I was thankful for that. And here I was now, um, conflicted with all this happening. She said, go home, rest, take time off from work. Um, Within a few days, she said, I'm not going to prescribe anything. Your mind right now is playing tricks on you. You just need to rest. Within a few days, my hives disappeared. And I really had to get into a place with the Lord where I was in full surrender mode, where I was thinking, God, it's not really my will. It's your will that will be done. When you go through these seasons of adversity, Mike, you have to have a real living faith um, relationship with the Lord. Not your mother's faith, not your grandmother's faith, um, not things that you've read in a devotional book. A real living faith that says, you know, right now, God, this is about me. This is about you. And it's about your will and the journey that you're about to take me on. Not my will, God, but your will be done. And I remembered Remember distinctly that conversation. I went on a five-mile walk with the Lord and just wrestling with him. I love how the scripture says, come. He invites us, Mike. He said, come, let us reason together. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) And I had a reasoning season with the Lord where there was a a subtle assurance where he said, you know what? I have you. I got you. You're not alone. Mm. You are mine. When you walk through the waters, I'm going to be with you. And guess what? They're not going to overflow you. Yes. When you walk through the fire, Tanya, you're going to see the fire. But guess what? You're not going to be burned. Yeah, and in so that great. moment, I recognized that this battle was not mine, Mike. This battle really belonged to the Lord. And I said, you know what? I'm going to set my mind at peace to know that whatever happens in this journey, whether he causes me to live, whether he caused me to die, I want to make sure that my anchor is settled in the Lord and that I'm willing to say, that's a hard prayer to pray, Mike. Mm-hmm. The prayer that says, God, your will be done. And I reached that place that gave me so much peace that I said, the devil is not going to mess with my mind through this process. I reached a place where my faith was anchored in the desire that God's will would be done. Mm. And I went through the passage of that experience. Here I am, Mike. A whole 16 years later, to God be the glory, yes. a cancer survivor. And I continued to testify and share my faith and my experience with other women. I've met other men that have been through the battle. And I tell them, I said, even when you're going through that system of affliction, the peace and abiding that you receive as you're going through it can come from God and God alone. And that really has been the testament of my survival. I went through my treatment. I went through chemo. I lost all my hair. I had a mastectomy, um, but the end of it, Mike, when I emerged on the other side, I was a completely different woman, Yes, completely different woman. I had seen God for myself. I understood how he could keep us. And now I understand what the three Hebrew boys went through when they were in the fiery furnace. Mm-hmm. It's not the fire that we should be afraid of, Mike. Can I tell you that? Fire can purify and fire can cleanse, Right. but fire can also kill. And I realized in that process that what God was doing wasn't trying to kill me. Scripture says that his desire is to prosper us and not harm us, Mm. to give us a future and a hope. So in the midst of adversity, my my one constant encouragement to anyone listening is to remember his word that won't return void. He said, my desire is to prosper you. So the question is not, why am I going through this? Why me? The question really is, God, how can this be good for me? And how can you bring glory out of this? 
Right. That's really, it's a difficult question to ask, Mike. But if we understand the nature of God and the heart of God, his desire is not to harm us. Uh-huh. If his desire is to prosper us, God, even out of this harmful, hurtful thing, how can you bring glory out of it? And this really became um, the impetus for my book, Mike. The impetus for my book was I cannot remain silent having gone through these difficult seasons of adversity. God, help me to be able to take these stories and give you glory. And I pray um, that through each page of this book, someone's faith would be quickened, would be encouraged. Um, Someone that is shackled would be set free. Someone who feels as though God has picked on them because I've been there. Mm -hmm. Someone who's feeling angry would feel a sense of restoration and liberation. Um, Someone would feel a sense of renewal. Like I said, fire could burn, but it could also purify. You know, fire is something that could cleanse. That someone would receive a cleansing and draw even closer to Jesus Christ because of their experience in adversity. You know, sometimes I had a a guy uh, tell me one time about the story that you mentioned, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Mm -hmm. the three Hebrew children. And he was talking about the fact that when they went in, it was three of them that went in. But as they looked in the fire and the flames, there appeared to be the fourth one. The fourth one, And he's there. And so he was walking among them and with them. And then he said, did you notice how many came out? And and I said, three. I said, three. And he said, the fourth is still in the flames. Yes. Isn't that good? (laughs) The fourth person, which is the Son of God, is still in the flames. And sometimes... Sometimes we have, uh, we have those opportunities where we're being thrown mm. in that furnace and we yes, can trust yes. that the Son of God is going to be in, the, in there with us to walk wow. us through and to be wow. with us. And that's what your book really is all about. It's this living the mango. Now, we've got to, got to give a brief explanation as to the mango aspect. Why <laughs> mangolicious? <laughs> what, yes. what is that about? Yes, it's a fair question. Everyone keeps asking me, how did you get a mango in a book about adversity? <laughs> so the mango is the king of fruits. It's celebrated all around the world. It actually is my favorite fruit, but it's also the favorite fruit of so many people in different cultures. I find that it's a relatable fruit. Mike, whether you are from Cuba and you love the rosa, or you're from Haiti and you love the mango fancique, or from Jamaica and you love the East Indian, whether you're from Thailand and you love the namdak, or you're from India and you love the maha chanuk, Mangoes reign as king of fruit. It's a relatable fruit. In the mango, though, Mike, there are sweet seasons, succulent seasons. It's such a delectable fruit, but we do know that there are also sour seasons of the mango. If you pick it too early, it's tardy, it's sour, it's not desirable. But in the end, it's still a wholesome, sweet, succulent fruit. Mm. God has allowed me to see our lives like a mango. The metaphor in the mangolicious life is that life could be sweet, life could be sour. Life could go through seasons, Mike. Life could go from the bud to the fruit, to the maturity, to the picking, but it's still a succulent life worth living. So that's the mangolicious life for me. It's a resilient life. It's oh, when I go through goodness. the sour seasons, it's realizing they're also sweet seasons, but it's still a life worth living. Now, are all the stories that you share with us in this program, are they included in the book? So that's the teaser. There are some stories uh-huh. <laughs> that are included in the book and much more. Because oh. what I've recognized, Mike, is that there is a common thread that connects resilient people. 
Um, I tell a story of my mentee, one of my mentees at church, Samantha Grady, who went through the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting in Parkland, you know, and how she mm-hmm. was able to survive it. Tell a story of a, another older lady in our church that went through one of the most horrific train accidents and walked out of that cabin as the only survivor. But the common core that I threw, see through each of these survivors of res- resilient people through difficult seasons is that common thread of living faith. So I talk about that. I talk about recognizing that you're not alone in going through adversity. Sometimes it feels like you're Job and the only one in this world. But I wanted other people to hear these powerful stories about people who have overcome immeasurable pain, um, people who've overcome immeasurable surmounting difficulties in their lives, and how they've been able to not only survive the difficulties, but they're in a season where they're now able to thrive. So You'll find that in the book. Lots of slices of Mangalicious living from different folks who have survived difficult seasons and how they got through that. And lessons learned at the end of the book. What did we learn from this experience? If we go through it and we come out on the other side bitter and remorseful and we are so ashamed of that experience. But the experience could have um, wings that takes us to new heights if we're able to reflect and remember and have takeaways from that season that are valuable for our lives, but also for the lives of others um, who we would testify and share those experiences with. You know, one of the takeaways I think that people need to, to really hear and walk away with this interview today with is that when adversity comes, it's not the end. There's hope on the other side. We just don't see the other side yet. Yes. But that's yes, why we yes. need to live the mangolicious yes. life. That's it. That's it. And, you know, the Bible says, thy word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. And I think it's the hiding of that word that we described as a reservoir. Yeah. When we go through these difficult seasons, God allows us to draw on that reservoir, to draw on that hidden word in our heart so that we don't sin against him in rebuking the presence of the Holy Spirit or rebuking the presence of God in our lives. So I encourage um, young folks, old folks, and in between to hide that word, learn to memorize scripture, because that will become your weapon of defense when the enemy comes in like a flood in those later years. So, you know, I talk about some lessons learned in the book. You know, you, you mentioned before about seasons. I did intentionally put that word in the title of my book, because one of the takeaways that I shared in the lessons learned chapter is that every season, Mike, has a beginning and an end. Mm -hmm. You look at nature, and there's so many salient lessons that we could glean from nature. Nature has a season where it it has fruits that are blossoming or flowers that are blossoming, and then it has a season where the blossoms become actual fruits, and then there's a season of dormancy. And so it is in our own lives that we have seasons that we may be flourishing and seasons when things may be bountiful, but the reality of life, and we have to have that mangalicious mindset, the reality of life is that seasons can shift, Mike. You can have seasons of dormancy um, in your business, in your marriage, seasons of dormancy in your health. Um, we shouldn't see it as though life has ended. We should recognize that it is a season. Recognize it for what it is. And with every season, there is a beginning and end. Whoever is yes. listening right now, I just want you to understand um, what you're going through is indeed a season. It may seem difficult. It may seem hard to digest. You may seem as though God has abandoned you in this period, or you're the only one. Um, I want you to recognize that it is in fact that. It is just a season, and with every season, this too will pass. That's right. Keep that as a comfort and as an encouragement that God is not 
um, so unfair. There's a wickedness in him that he would delight in the suffering of his people. In fact, he delights in the prayers and the praise and rejoicing of his people. Love it. Um, so that's the first peccary, that see adversity for what it is. It's a season. And that's the second great. one I want to share is the need to have places of refuge. What was helpful for me as I went through my season of adversity was to have family support. You know, my family was there. My husband was there. My mom and my church was a big place of refuge for me to just go to a place that I could cry out to the Lord and be my natural self and not have to pretend that everything was okay. Um, Samantha shared that her place of refuge oftentimes was cooking. You know, she would bake cookies or bake cakes and give them away to people and try to comfort and encourage people. Um, I found over the years, Mike, that one of my places of refuge that absolutely delights me is nature. When I walk through the garden alone and I know that God is there and I feel his presence and I look at nature and I see how he cares for the trees and sparrows. And the Bible says if he cares for the sparrows and the lilies, how much more would he care for me? Um, so those places of refuge are so important. Don't try to be reclusive or to hide yourself away. It's a natural thing to want to draw the covers over your head and hide from the world. But um, so often, one of the coping mechanisms that God gives us in seasons of adversity are those places of refuge. You know, it's worship, it's the family, it's nature, um, it may be sports. Some people like basketball. It's going into the things that keep you alive and keep your soul watered and keep you nourished. Um, one of the third things I'll add, but you have to read the book, really to begin with the end in mind. Always remember the goal and the destination, even when you're going through seasons of adversity. What is my purpose? Why was I here? And once the season has ended, what do I need to be doing in ministry and in work with this thing that I have learned? For me, the end in mind is when God gave me a mess, I realized that he also gave me a message. So the message that I'm sharing in the book <laughs> wow. is that God restores. Um, this may seem like a difficult season, but before you know it, your best years are still ahead. And That's the best right. is yet to come. Give us your website. The website is Tanya the Mango Lady. So T-A-N-Y-A-T-H-E, MangoLady.com. Tanya the MangoLady.com. You can find me on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. I'm also on WordPress. I have uh, the Mango Lady blog that's on WordPress if you want to check that out as well. So you just type in Mangalicious Life, Tanya Wilson, and you found me on Amazon. That's beautiful. We're out of time. Tanya, thank you so much. Tanya Wilson, be sure and get the book, The Mangalicious Life, Living the Mangalicious Life. And friends, thanks for joining me today on Afternoons with Mike. We'll see you next time right here on The Shepherd.